I'm Kate Daniels. I feel the most appropriate introduction of Patrick Smithick is that he is a devoted father. Yes, Patrick is a writer, and we'll discuss his most recent book, War's Over, Come Home, and he's a teacher, but he's a dad, and we're going to hear how he takes this role to heart. Patrick Smithick, good morning. Thank you so greatly for being with us today. Good morning, Kate. It's an honor to be on your show. I've, I've listened to some some of your shows, and uh, I'm excited about it. Well, you know, I have these mixed feelings in speaking with you, Patrick. It, it is excitement, but there's also your book, the latest book you've written, War's Over, Come Home, A Father's Search for His Son, two-tour Marine veteran of the Iraq War. And see, it just... it. It's so emotional. Uh, the fact that you wrote this, I, I can't commend you enough for being so open, so vulnerable, telling us this story. One immediate feeling that I had was like, damn war. You know, I just, it's so frustrating that we send off these beautiful young people, men and women now, into these war zones and they come back so broken. So this is your story. Before I get jumping into saying your story, this is your story about your son, Andrew, your middle child, a young man. I, I Let's see, he'd be 30-something now. Yes, his, his birthday is coming up when he'll be 39 on June 22nd. And so he did these two tours of duty in, in his young 20s. I mean, he was a strong guy, a, a Marine, and uh, it, doing two tours, that's a lot of time in a war zone. And, and then he was honorably discharged. He chose to leave the military at that time, right? Yes. Yeah, so when he went, he went into the Marines out of high school, he'd taken about a year's worth of college courses and got bored. And when he went into the Marines, he really thrived. He loved the discipline, and he was razor fit because I used to run cross-country with him, and he played sports. And so he did really well at Paris Island, and he did, did well in the Marines. And um, he actually tested very high. And at first, he was in sort of in uh, computer science in the Marines, so he ended up signing up for five years because they had to put him in so much training. And... Um, and he uh, served for t- two tours, and the, the Marines were really good about it, actually, because when they, he went, he went for the precise amount of time they were supposed to go, and then he came back. But the second tour was fairly close to when he was decommissioned, and uh, there wasn't much, you know, decompression. He was just a few months out of the war zone, seeing people blown up and picking up body parts and being shot at and shooting people, and then come home, and three or four months later, he's... He's out getting a job working security. So uh, then he he did very well the first couple of years, and then he he gradually, after he got out of the Marines, he he sort of starts going into a a downward vortex where first he just got a little paranoid, and then he got started getting more and more nervous, and then he got a bit schizophrenic, and then he even started hallucinating, and he would kind of bounce back and get a job, and then things would fall apart. And he'd bounce back and get a job, and things would fall apart again. And now he's a homeless survivalist somewhere in the Southwest. And, you know, to to go through all that, to think of 
you touched on what he saw when he came back and to to think that you know seeing all that horror and dealing with death on a daily basis uh right beside you knowing that it could be you just as easily and and then to try and re-enter like quote normal life that how can we expect that to be the case you would think that there would be really some sort of period of maybe even a year to go through some sort of decompression and and having to to do some healing and and expunging of all those demons yes exactly and um, i've talked to some uh vietnam veterans and world war ii veterans and they mentioned the world war ii veterans mentioned that when they came back say from the atlantic theater they were in a huge ship and they were all together and took weeks and weeks to get across the ocean and they were joking and playing cards and drinking and talking about their their aims in life and uh and even some of the vietnam veterans had a, a little sort of a longer trip home where they were together as a group and um that just doesn't happen today so i agree and if you go back just thousands of years even to the greeks the greeks in athens athens was at war with sparta for about 80 years and they used to bring all their young men together after battles and after major campaigns in the amphitheater and have them watch a tragedy, sometimes written by a commanding officer, a general, and all the soldiers felt together. They felt like, you know, they were in this together. Because it, what, what did happen to Andrew was he really bonded with his with his group of friends and comrades and, and you know, people he fought side by side with in the Marines, and then, then when he got out, he, he didn't have that uh, group anymore. And then for him, the, good, the really good thing about the Marines was the, the, he loved the discipline, and that wasn't difficult for him, and he loved the, uh, the schedule, how everything was sort of scheduled out, and it was all sharp, and you knew it at 5 o'clock in the morning, you showed up and you ran 10 miles and did 100 push-ups, and then you went and had breakfast, then you went on duty or whatever. And so when he got out, he didn't have that, that schedule anymore. He didn't have that group of people. So you're right, that was difficult for him. And even with having a job, and, and he was obviously able to, to get some good jobs that, that fit him, like in construction, but even that was just not enough of that kind of structure and and perhaps requiring enough of him physically that it was just a different kind of atmosphere certainly not the way the military would be yes exactly and um yes he did have a construction job and he kept getting security jobs i was a little concerned about that because i thought he'd get bored doing that but but actually, he was pretty good at security jobs because he, he was very social and um, would talk to people and befriend them. And you know, if he, was, he had a security job in New York City at Bank of America, and they just loved him there. We went in, and all the other security people came up, and people that worked there and praised him because he he was just so positive. But then that that it took about two years after he got back, maybe three years, where he, where he just started going downhill and lost that, that positivity. And was there really a time that he could describe that to you as to what 
kind of switched? Was it like something snapped that I, I can appreciate it would happen, but I wonder, is that something that happened? No, it was it was very gradual, really. Uh, we first noticed my wife and I when he he got out, and then he um, well then we it was my great idea for him to go right into college, and with the GI Bill, and we got him an apartment, helping his mother Ansley went up to New York City and helped him get an apartment. We got him all set up to go to a really good uh, small college there. And he just went to a few classes, and he wrote me a note, and he just said, Dad, I just can't sit in there with, you know, some instructor telling me what to do and, and, and with the undergraduates, and I, I just can't do it. So that was just, you know, flat for him. Mm-hmm. And that, then he went out and got the job working security. And then he, because uh, he was in pretty good shape when he first got out, he was running and lifting weights, and he was excited to go to New York City. Well, the other thing is that the adrenaline rush of war. So when he first got back from Iraq, I was really worried his last three months in the military because he kept doing these things. He'd get in a car with a bunch of guys and go down at, you know, go down in the middle of the night to Mexico and get back just at 5 o'clock for PT. And he was pushing things. He was doing things on the edge. And then in New York, he was doing a little of that. I think that he was just used to that adrenaline rush of warfare. And he got back, and it was sort of boring. And then he would go places. He was in a bar one time out west near uh, 29 Palms. They call it 29 Stumps. And uh, he was just sitting there. No, this is when he was still in the Marines. And some guy asked what he was up to, and Andrew said, well, he's going back to his sister's graduation. And so this other man made a comment or two about Andrew's sister. And so then the other guy thought he said tough and made these comments and then had a couple of drinks and left. And Andrew followed him out, you know, pulled him over in his car and got him out and gave him a good going over. But he was just really on edge. And uh, things would, so he was jumpy, you're right. Mm -hmm. There wasn't anything gradual, really. To think because I like to try and, and get an understanding of what goes on and, and why we aren't getting that understanding and helping these young people who we send off to war and war zones is, you know, expecting them to be able to then compartmentalize. I've not been to such a situation. I can't even imagine it. And I don't want anybody to really be in that kind of circumstance. So it's understandable that that would be his reaction when he had already been you know, in that mode for so many years, how do you just say, stop stop acting that way? Yeah. We're in a different world now. I just saw a, a friend of mine just sent me, it's really interesting since his book's coming out, I'm learning about all these different therapies and treatments for veterans with, with PTSD, and there's so many people out there really making a difference. And uh, just today, I opened quickly before speaking to you an uh, email, and it was a program where uh, soldiers attend it for about two or three weeks, a special program, and it helps veterans figure out what they want to do with their lives, what kind of job they want to get, helps them look at the possibility of where they're going to live, are they going to buy a house, and just the practicalities, because I think people forget when you're in the Army, everything's there. You know, your living, your food, your, uh, your friends, what you do every day, and then you, then you leave, you have to start fresh. So there are these kind of programs, and perhaps the military itself can, can incorporate some of these ideas. Rightly so. 
because maybe that's an easing out of that very pretty much rigid or very strict system and then to expect right. that there aren't there's none of that that feels traumatic i'll have to tell you that um i'm from a very uh horsey family my family's been in the thoroughbred racing industry and my father's in the hall of fame of racing and my uncle also and um so we, we grew up getting up at five o'clock every morning and working with horses and ponies before going to school and then and i worked my way all the way through college through Johns Hopkins exercising horses at, at Pimlico and at racetracks up and down the East Coast. But the reason I'm bringing this up is that Andrew actually was a really good horseman, and um, he was our most gentle child, really. He, <laughs> what I keep thinking of, when he was a little boy, I had to put the worms on the hook for him. Even his <laughs> sister would just put those worms right on. Andrew would say, no, I just can't do that. Hmm. And then um, when we went riding, I had to put the bits in his pony's mouth for him. He wouldn't do that. But what he was really good at was getting on a horse and calming a nervous horse down. The horse or any animal would immediately feel the, uh, Andrew's kind of calm presence. So the reason I'm bringing this up is that about a year or so after he got out of the Marines, maybe eight months, he went to work for my uncle Mikey Smithick for about a year with horses, and that was really good for him. You get up and you get to work at 6 o'clock every morning, seven days a week, no days off. And it's very, very structured, and he's outside, and he's with these big, strong animals, and, and he was a really good rider. And that was the perfect kind of thing, which I can segue into um, EAT, Equine Assisted Therapy, oh, really yes. interests me. Mm-hmm. And that's for soldiers with PTSD. There's a program the Man of War Project at Columbia, conducted by scientists at Columbia University for EAT, and it's doing very well. It's one of many programs to help veterans. And I've often wished that we could get Andrew. We, we know he's in the southwest somewhere, and the last time, way back in 2018 or so, that we actually saw him, he was hiking about 13 miles a day up in, up in the foothills and down to the Rio Grande. And I wish that I could get him a job at the racetrack or working with horses or something like that, but but we're out of touch with him right now. And just a side note briefly, when you talk about the equine therapy, there are several locations here in the Puget Sound that they use horses for therapy with young people who are dealing with traumatic situations in their life. And it's it's really remarkable what a difference it is making. So I can see how you would, you know, being from a horsey family, would want to then maybe be able to draw Andrew back and have this as a way for him to do the therapy and help others with the therapy. Yes, yes, that would be great. And he's, he always stays in shape. Even we know from um, the last time we saw him, he was running four miles every morning. He was very disciplined. And he, uh, back in um, 2018, his uncle Graham was in the Marines and um, tracked Andrew down and uh, tried to talk to him way back. This is you know, quite a few years ago. And what uh, Graham found was that Andrew got up and at 7 o'clock every morning he was in a certain park and he had a circuit. He'd run four miles, do all these push-ups, and he had some weights. And uh, he likes doing physical things where he gets exercise. Which makes one think about uh, that military 
training that he had, the discipline is, is something that he loved, and that it is still staying with him, and it, it perhaps is what is giving him life and energy. Yes. At, uh, at one point, uh, we managed to, through a Marine veteran that we know, knew someone fairly high up in the Navy, and we tried to find out where Andrew's getting his small disability check. He has an injury or two, and he gets a small amount uh, through ATM. But due to HIPAA and all the banking regulations and everything today, uh, we never could use this to find him. But uh, this uh, colonel in the Navy told us that they knew that he was doing well, and he was surviving because of his Marine training. Not doing well, but he was doing all right and was fairly safe due to his training as a Marine. Oh, you know, it's just uh, gut-wrenching to think about that, both from the side of his just being out there on his own, homeless. You as parents, you and your wife Ainsley, you know, searching for him and and flying around the country and to to see if you could find him. In fact, you you were in Seattle here about six years ago. Yes, I was um, teaching full time at a, a middle school. I was teaching medieval history, which I came to love, and um, we suddenly got a call. Uh, we got a call from a hospital from the VA in Seattle, the VA hospital, and all it was was Andrew told them to call his mother and to say that he had been in the hospital but that he was all right. But as soon as we got that call, um, about two days later, I was two days later I was on a plane flying to Seattle and um, trying to meet him at the Frankfurter stand. So I talked to him for a moment on the phone and we tried to get him to come home. He said, "He said, well, meet me at the Frankfurter stand on the waterfront. Is that is that right, Kate? That is right. You know yes. Where I mean? Yes. And the uh, and uh, and my wife, I was kind of stunned. And my wife said, "Your dad will be there." <laughs> so I got a flight and I flew all the way out there. And then um, we couldn't find him. I, I couldn't find him when I was out there. So and- I, I searched all through Seattle for about four days. I had a a circuit myself, and I would just do a big loop around the city, which I came to know really well. And it was the first time I'd done this looking for Andrew on my own. It was extremely intense, and I didn't know what kind of shape he was in, and I was worried that he had been, you know, was badly injured. But I knew he was in the hospital, so I was walking along the waterfront, and I'd see a homeless person lying in a sleeping bag with a blanket over his head, and I'd pull the blanket off, and I'd say, is that you, Andrew? And I went to the uh, certain park, and I looked all over. And then, uh, of course, I, often I saw tall, uh, lanky guys. As Andrew's at six three, and and uh, you know, handsome young man, fit looking. And I'd I'd see someone like that, and I think it was Andrew. And I'd go up, and or I might even say Andrew, and then he'd turn around, and it, it wouldn't be him. And I did that for about three or four days in in Seattle, and. Uh, came home, actually, when I came home and I got home at midnight, my wife, Ansley, was on the phone to Andrew, and then he he uh, flew home uh, a few days later, 
but we had a, a altercation and he left again. So I'm getting too far into the book. What I want to say is, is that so many times it wasn't just me. It was a, usually it was the whole family: my son Patty, my daughter Eliza, my wife Andrew, and uh, Andrew's uncle Graham. And um, we would hear we would just get a posting on the Facebook. But sometimes a phone call or usually a posting because we we put the word out we had to find Andrew Smithett. And then we get these photographs, and then we try to do that with Andrew, and then we talk to the people, and we say, how tall was he? How tall? And one time we went all the way to San Diego, and they kept saying, we went to different places. Oh, he's really tall. He's really tall. And then they, we'd find the person they're talking about, and, you know, he wouldn't have been. But people wanted to help so much. So we lived this kind of uh, nervous lifestyle. Where my wife was the head of the school then. And we were just always on call. We never knew when we were going to get a phone. And in a day or so later, we might pack up and leave. Many a time, my son, Patty, or Eliza would call me. And they'd, they'd say, well, have you decided what you're doing, Dad? And I said, well, are you going to San Diego? Or are you going to Santa Fe? Or, or are you going back to Seattle? And they would say, Dad, we're here now. Are you coming? <laughs> <laughs> oh. so, uh, so we were just always ready to pull up stakes and go. It's just so amazing, the family love that is here. And what I feel with your sharing, both right now and in your book, Wars Over, Come Home, Patrick, is letting us see the other side of homelessness. Here in Seattle, we do see a lot of homeless individuals on the street. And I do wonder, what is the story? You're helping us to see the family that's there, the family that's just being torn apart, but you're sticking together, but it's just really tearing at your heart. And and the love, though, just is, is pulling you along and drawing you into to keep looking for Andrew. As I'm sitting here, these years later, I can, it's seared into my memory. I can remember just about every homeless person, every homeless person who had a certain station in Seattle, where they were sitting, what I'd talk to them about, if they had a Vietnam hat on or Iraq veteran hat. I mean, I can picture every one of them. I can picture one. So that that's what this is about. This book is a microcosm of what thousands of 67,000 families are going through. There's 67,000 homeless veterans out on the streets in America. And that's part of why I wrote the book. I hope it would bring attention to it. And Andrew's one of them. And of course, I never knew that I would be doing this. But the way it affects you, you're, you're so correct. I can remember this one man was kind of fragile, and he was on the waterfront, and he'd be smiling every day, and he was very nice, and he'd say hi to me, and I'd walk by, and I'd put some money in his cup. And I always wondered, because he had this uh, blanket on his lap, and I thought, that's strange. He had this blanket on his lap, and it was, it was warm that weekend. As I told you earlier, it was the first sunny weekend, apparently, in about two months. And um, so I put some money in his cup, and he leaned over to get the cup, and the blanket fell off, and he had no legs and was in the wheelchair there. And, and I said, well, I can get that. And he said, no, I'm all right. I'll get it. And I can just picture so many of the different homeless individuals and the people at the shelters were extremely uh, helpful to me when I went into the shelters and, and talked to them, as you know, from, from reading the book. Right. Oh, it's 
This is an invaluable gift that you are giving us, shedding this light on on an individual, on a family, and then on the larger homeless population, more particularly the veterans. I mean, this is a huge number, and it just seems like this awful sin that these people, and we want to say we honor our veterans, and yet to let them you know, be on the streets. Uh, the 22 commit suicide every day. I, my mind has a hard time really wrapping around those numbers. I know the incredible thing that I just learned recently is that approximately 45% of the uh, vets on the street are Vietnam veterans. So they are, they are getting older. And, uh, you know, it's, it's just a shame that these mainly men in the Vietnam era are on the street, and this is how they're spending the last decade or so of their of their lives. Yes. The, uh, the one there there is some good news. Uh, HUD and the VA uh, are working to allocate thirty eight thousand housing vouchers for veterans, and people are doing more and more uh, work to help veterans. But if if we could help them, you know, get set up to have a place to live. And I mean, some of them are living basically a pre-medieval lifestyle just in, you know, sleeping bags on the street or in the park or under a bridge somewhere. And if we could get these vets who deserve it off the street and into housing and they could get their lives together, it would be a wonderful thing. And I think that the VA is working with HUD to try to do this. Well, that is some good news. I feel you are doing so much. As you said, you never expected that this is what you would be doing. But your background is in writing, in journalism, uh, in teaching, in education. And the fact that uh, you can gather together all these stories and make them into this book, Wars Over, Come Home, A Father's Search for His Son, Tutor, Marine Veteran of the Iraq War. Patrick, I think that, you know, who knows what God's plan is in terms of what our lives are, but it seems like then you are doing what you were led to do. And and my hope is that in sharing this story, it helps all of us just have a better awareness and and have more compassion to do something to to make this better for for the homeless, but in particular those who have served our country and we want to say honor the vets, we need to think of how we honor them well. That is very well expressed. Thank you. That's that's exactly what what I would hope comes from this book and the you just explained it perfectly, Kate. Well, let's then encourage others to pick up their copy of the book, and they can do it, of course, online or ask for it at their favorite bookstore because then the bookstore, if they don't have it, can order it, correct? Yes, and I'm, I try to uh, support the independent bookstores and, and bookstore chains and you know the books on Amazon, but I'm a, a bookstore goer and, and lover, and some bookstores have had a hard time lately. Yes. So hopefully they can go to their bookstore or get it on Amazon. And or some uh, people who live near near me know that I have this office in the barn here in, in Moncton, Maryland, and they, they come right into my office and get one. Oh, if only we could just get there and do that. But that is directly 
on the very opposite side of the country from us, but it sounds like a wonderful place. You do have a website, though, speaking of places. So uh, share that with us, if you would, please. Yes. My daughter, Eliza, who's a major figure in the book, uh, designed the website patricksmithick.com. And it has all my books. I've written a trilogy of racing books that have won some awards and done really well. That have they're about people, but they have horses in the background. And then this is my fourth memoir, Wars Over, and it's uh, it leads off on the uh, on the website patricksmithick.com. Well, Patrick Smithick, I just am so in awe of who you are, your family, of Andrew. That you know how tenacious he is, how he is so strong. You had instilled that obviously in him from a very young young man, young child. And I can only wish you hope and some connections as time goes on so that uh, at least some of your dreams are realized. Thank you. We, I do have a great deal of hope, and we uh, have not given up at all I have not given up, and knowing and my family has given up, and we hope that this book is going to help us find Andrew help. And also I want to say that I look forward to visiting Seattle again because I really did love your city and to come out there on, on a sunny week again. I've been there for a wedding also, and it's a wonderful place. Well, we will welcome you, and be sure to let us know you're coming. Uh, maybe we can make it a bookstore event. Wouldn't that be fun? That would be great, Kate. Thank you very much. You're so welcome. Well, thank you again for your work, for your time with us today, and for really helping us to learn something that is so greatly important in our lives. All right. And and thank you. And I want to thank the people of Seattle. When I was out there, it was just incredible how helpful they were. 